Hello and welcome to Mrs M's Curiosity Cabinet, a podcast about materials, the making instinct and a craft for life. Welcome to the 27th episode of this podcast, whether you are a new listener, a long-term one or an occasional one. Wherever you are tuning in from, you are very welcome in my Curiosity Cabinet. If you are new around here, I'm Meg and I live in London in the UK. I am a curious soul with an instinct to make and a love of natural materials, including fibre and clay. I'm also a writer and obviously a podcaster, and due to my curious nature, I can often be found experimenting and trying my hand at different skills. In these podcasts, I talk about my making life in the widest meaning of the term. I share what I am making, but also mull over the whys and wherefores of my projects, materials and processes. Between episodes, you can find me on Instagram as Mrs. M. Curiosity Covenant, and that is with an underscore between each word, and you'll find show notes at mrsmscuriositycabinet.com. How are you all keeping? As most COVID-related restrictions have officially been lifted here in England, I'm slowly relearning how to balance pockets of energy with current opportunities. That sounds daft, but like many people living with chronic health issues, lockdown meant I was not expending precious energy working out how to balance and recharge the internal battery, as there were simply fewer opportunities. This balancing act does come back to us, but it's amazing how easy it is to get out of practice. So it's taking a bit of trial and error to work out again what recovery time is needed for different activities, as well as which risks and exhaustion levels are worth the price. But like everything, practice makes it easier, so I have cautiously been arranging catch-ups with friends over cups of tea and the occasional gallery or garden visit. And this month I've even managed a whole day workshop and an overnight trip to Wakefield in Yorkshire to see the Barbara Hepworth exhibition. Nothing particularly headline-grabbing, but the kind of small adventures that for me are akin to a holiday. So what do I have in store for this episode? There's a spot of knitting with a new interpretation of one of my favourite shawl patterns, as well as a pretty success from my ponderously slow bra-making journey. And I will finish up by sharing a little tool-making project too. So I hope you have a drink and a project to hand, and let's get started. After finishing the epic black hose I talked about last time, I longed for an easy, frivolous, comfort knit. Easy, frivolous and comfort mean different things to different people, but for me, comfort means natural shades and an interesting wool in the hand. Frivolous equals lace, and easy means a pattern and yarn combination that I can read without taxing my brain or eyes too much. So, I plumped for one of my favourite shawl patterns of all time, Carrie Westerman's Mahi Shawl. The mahi is a triangular hap-like shawl which starts with one stitch and then builds out to a triangle. Then stitches are picked up along the two shorter sides and after a few consolidating rows of garter strip, the lace starts. At first, a relatively simple compact motif, followed by a larger section of sweeping, more expansive lace before returning to the compact motif. And finally, there's an applied border. I know that some people will bristle at the thought of this shawl being described as an easy knit. The charted pattern might look daunting, the shawl is absolutely vast, and it's designed for a lace weight yarn, although a four-ply fingering weight one definitely works too. All these things would normally 
count against it as a simple knit. I do, however, think it's a relatively simple knit because it's very logical, with the same basic steps being repeated, which results in a pattern that after a few rows is very easy to read. Knitters often talk about patterns being intuitive, but I think that's actually just shorthand for a knit where you know what's coming next, as you can read the pattern based on what's gone before, both in terms of the previous stitches and the previous rows. The lace in the Mahi shawl looks really impressive when knitting, and especially after blocking, but ultimately it's made up of highly accessible knitting building blocks, garter stitches, knit-togethers and yarn-overs. This is not intended in any way to diminish Carrie's skills. In fact, there is a real art to making something so beautiful out of such a limited palette of stitches. And as far as I'm concerned, the result is more elegant and satisfying than many designs that involve an abundance of complexity and features. Once I slipped into the almost rhythmic repetition of the garter stitch lace, this was a truly soothing and relaxing knit. Not a mindless activity, but rather a kind of resting emotion. As to the yarn, I used a wool that is the polar opposite to the one I used for my first mahi. Interpretation number one involved a lofty woolen spun Shetland and Romney blend, one of Kettle Yarn Co.'s discontinued wools, that produced a cloud-like hug in a warm off-grey. Mahi shawl number two, by contrast, is a more brooding affair as I knit it in Daughter of a Shepherd's Hebridean lace. Having knit Donna Smith's Hooland Hap in Daughter of a Shepherd's Hebridean four-ply some years ago, I was really interested to see how the heavy lace weight yarn would compare. Unlike the four-ply, which is a 75%, 25% Hebridean Zwartbless worsted spun yarn, this is 100% Hebridean and it's a single ply. As there's no twisting of plies together to tame some of the wispier fibres, this lace weight yarn feels a bit more crispy than the four-ply, and is reminiscent of a fine tweed in the hand and on the needles. Like a lot of the wools I enjoy working with, this one definitely yielded in the hand the more I worked the shawl. There is definitely still a heartiness to this wool, but just as linen feels crisp straight off the bolt but softens with working it, so too does this lace wool. As I wanted to tell you as much as possible about this wool and knit, I took the shawl off the needles before starting the applied border and gave it a quick soak. This has caused it to soften a little, but I'm intrigued to see how much more the yarn will soften after a full soak with some conditioner, and after several months of wearing. In its current state, it reminds me of Mr M's old tweed sports jacket. While his jacket definitely has a dry and grippy texture, the years of wearing it have given it a sturdy yet comfortable feel, much like well-worn upholstery in a cosy supportive armchair. I didn't block the shawl after soaking it, but I can already tell that the Hebridean lace is producing good stitch definition on the lace sections of the shawl. The most delightful thing about the wool, though, is without a doubt its colour. Hebridean sheep have very dark brown, almost black fleeces, so this shawl is a really striking dark shade, but with some natural luster, which gives an interesting depth to the colour. As I was knitting, I occasionally came across flecks of silver and white. Some of these felt like bits of kemp, but there were also softer flecks, which must have come from the fleece of slightly older sheep. All of this makes the wool even more delightful to me as someone with my fair share of silver locks.
Although some will definitely find this wool too robust for next to the skin accessories, I think this shawl will make a cosy, beautiful, yet no-nonsense extra layer that will wear better and better. Not necessarily as a snugly shawl around the neck, but worn in the traditional hat manner as an extra layer. As to the practical credentials, Daughter of a Shepherd's Hebridean Lace comes in skeins of about 600 metres or 660 yards per 100 grams. Mr M gave me this wool as a birthday present a couple of years ago, so I'm not sure how much it costs, but the current batch is priced at £22 per skein. That's not an insignificant amount of money, obviously, but to put it into context, it's on a par with the price of a lot of hand-dyed, generic superwash merino blends. So it's not bad at all for a wool with an amazing natural colour that has been grown, scoured and spun in the UK. If you want to know more about Hebridean fibre in general and some of the different Hebridean wools currently available, I can wholeheartedly recommend episode 123 of the Woolwork podcast. Louise Scolly and her intrepid wool explorers have sampled an impressive range of Hebridean wool and fibre, and as always, they highlight not just the amazing characteristics of different breeds, but also the amount of variety within a single breed. I thought I'd bring you an update on my stop-start bra-making journey. Bra making is an exercise in perseverance as it takes trial, error and tweaking, i.e. extensive twalling, to achieve a good fit, all the more so in the context of underwired bras. As I was working my way through twals last summer, something unexpected happened though. As soon as the pools reopened last year, I started swimming to ease the chronic pain, but I soon noticed that it also had unintended consequences for my upper body. This meant I needed to go back to the drawing board with the bra twirls. As I couldn't face circling round different band and cup size combinations at the time to figure out what size I might be, I took a different approach, prompted by something I'd realised thanks to the swimming. I had for decades taken it as read that I needed underwired bras for support, but the pool's policy of limiting access to pre-swim changing rooms made me rethink that. I was walking to the pool wearing my swimming costume under my clothes and felt quite comfortable with the level of support it offered. I was not about to break into a run, but for going about my everyday business, the negative ease, racer back straps and bra shelf of my swimming cosy were adequate. I therefore decided to focus on non-wired bra patterns while my upper body figured out what shape it would be when it stopped fluctuating due to the swimming. I'm very aware that what constitutes a comfortable, supportive and aesthetically pleasing bra is a deeply personal thing. So, for my musings on bra making to be of some use, I thought I would first talk about the general things I've learned about bra making and then share my most recent make to highlight some specifics and why the particular design worked for me. Let's set out some parameters first. As someone who generally needs to make full bust adjustments, I obviously need a degree of support. Also, based on my bones, I've always had a sizeable ribcage. Many of my observations therefore stem from these perspectives. What are my general insights on bra making then, apart from the inevitable need to make a twirl, if not several? First up, some sizing related issues. I would say ignore any bra size you think you are and measure as per the pattern instructions. Don't assume anything. 
The method for working out bra size varies dramatically from designer to designer, and even sometimes between different patterns by the same designer. Next, even though measurements are key, use the size based on the pattern instructions as a starting point only. Be prepared to tweak the pattern or even go up or down a size after the first 12. There can be many reasons for having to do this. For example, a different degree of stretch and recovery in the materials you're using compared to the sample pattern. The designer's own wearing preferences when it comes to angles, coverage and distribution of support or even the assumptions a designer makes about support and coverage when creating patterns. If you need a larger cup size to accommodate your bust, I'd say go for designs where the cup is formed from multiple pattern pieces, especially when starting out. I know patterns with fewer pieces seem simpler at first glance, but it's actually easier to get a better fit with multiple pieces. This is because the more seams there are, the more scope there is for slash and spread to allow for greater volume. Another observation for the fuller busted sewer, particularly when sewing non-wired bras, is that wider underbands or band elastic do not necessarily equate to more support. A lot of the wider elastics recommended for bralettes are not actually that strong and often have the tendency to roll back on themselves. I have found that I get more support from a band of stretched fabric edged at the upper and lower edge with 10 to 12 millimeter or 3 eighths to a quarter of an inch lingerie elastic. And for extra support, you can even line the fabric with power net or two layers of power mesh. The final size related issue is that a lot of bloggers and vloggers recommend getting a bra kit when starting out as it takes the hassle out of sourcing materials that you're not yet familiar with. While this advice can make sense, if you need to make a larger size or have a large cup size, I would generally say ignore that advice. The only exception is if you can buy a kit specifically tailored to a pattern and importantly the size range you want to sew. There are a couple of reasons for this. First, if you are sewing a larger size, it can be really helpful to work with wider strap elastic, power knit instead of power mesh, and a wider closure for ample support. Secondly, if you like bras with pretty scalloped lace, you need to make sure the lace is wide enough. Most galoon laces are about 16 to 18 centimeters wide, or about six and a quarter to seven inches, and Depending on the brow pattern, this width is rarely enough to accommodate larger sizes. It is possible to find wider laces, but they are generally not used in kits. And although it is possible to piece lace together to create the necessary width, kits often don't include enough lace to do this well. The second category of observations relate to precision. Precision is essential in sewing bras, as all sections of the bra need to slot together accurately. Most bra patterns are drafted with smaller seam allowances than other garments, typically about 6 to 7 millimetres or a quarter of an inch. I've heard a lot of sewers comment that they are scared of small seam allowances, but I suspect it's a need for precision that is more daunting than the seam allowances. And it may sound counterintuitive, but easing convex curves into concave ones is actually easier with a smaller seam allowance. For all the emphasis on the need for precision, it's also really important to develop a feel for how far you can push a fabric in terms of unpicking. It might be possible to unpick jersey fabric or a rigid duoplex, but power mesh and lace will not respond well to multiple goes with a seam ripper. 
as well as potentially damaging the fabric, repeated unpicking and re-sewing will stretch them out. I've learnt to curb my perfectionist tendencies at times and occasionally accept a tiny pucker rather than doing more damage by unpicking and re-stitching. The last set of general observations is a bit of a potpourri, but no less relevant for that. First, it's helpful to understand a key concept behind bra designs, which links into one of the biggest differences between bra and garment sewing. In garment sewing, grain line is king. In underwear sewing, particularly bra making, the direction of greatest stretch, or dogs, is a key concept. Typically, bras involve some stretch across the cup, Minimal stretch in the front band, as that is where most of the support comes from, and some stretch across the back band to ensure a comfortable fit. There are patterns, mostly for soft bras and bralettes, that ignore this principle, and particularly with regard to the front bust band. In my opinion, this does undermine the support the bra offers, unless the designer has factored in other ways to enhance support. Even if you opt for a pattern that ignores these principles, it's useful to understand them so you can make informed decisions about what cutting and lining tweaks you might make, but more on that later. In connection with sourcing materials, especially if you're not relying on kits, I would recommend keeping good records of the materials and where they come from, particularly for elastics. Not all elastics are made equal. Quality, stretch, sturdiness can vary significantly and finding a good one can make a big difference to the finished bra. I learnt the tedious way how useful it is to keep records after trawling through receipts and online order records to remind myself where a particularly good elastic came from. Now I scribble the details of my materials down in my sewing know-how notebook for future reference. And as people often wonder where to source materials from if they're not buying a kit, I tend to buy stretch lace from the online stores of the lace company at thelace.co.uk or the only place for lace on Etsy, and elastic closures and other bits and bobs from the sewing chest at sewingchest.co.uk. Occasionally I may splurge on international postage and source materials like mesh and elastic from Small Bobbins in Belgium at smallbobbins.com. Another tip with regards to elastics, especially non-pico plush elastics, is to stick a pin in the side that you're stitching face up just before cutting off any excess. This way you will know which side should face up on the next length. Sometimes this isn't necessary, for example where fold-over elastic has one very shiny side. But in the case of good quality elastics that are soft on both sides, it can be quite hard to tell which one is a plush side that should sit against the skin. If you are interested in sewing bras, I would also recommend watching as many designers sew along videos as part of your research, even of patterns that you're not particularly drawn to. For one, these give a good insight into the constituent parts of bra design and materials and help inform which pattern may be best suited to you for your needs and preferences. Secondly, different designers emphasise different techniques from tweaking fit to finishing methods and many of these can be applied to other patterns. More on this later too. The final general observation is to know your machine and trust your instincts. One of the regular cautionary comments you hear in designers' sew-along videos is to backstitch at the start and end of the seams. 
This makes perfect sense, but I know that my machine throws a fit every time I try to backstitch stretch fabric, particularly on the zigzag setting. So instead, I've learned to trust my instinct and ignore this advice and simply sew in the start tail of my seams by hand. That was quite a mouthful of general observations, so you might want to go and get a refill before I start on some specifics based on a successful recent project. I recently made my second Josie bra, a non-wired bra pattern by Made My Wardrobe. This is a bra designed for stretch jersey fabric and or lace. It has a 70s feel with a neckline and cleavage reminiscent of a 70s halter neck dress. The cups consist of two pieces, a lower side cup and an upper cup piece that extends up to form the shoulder band. The bra has two triangular lower back straps. Think of an elongated triangle that is falling over backwards. The lower back straps and the front shoulder straps all attach to a two centimetre or about three quarters of an inch ring. The straps are therefore not adjustable, but I keep a longer tail on them when I make the bra and only trim it down after wearing the bra for a couple of days. The pattern also comes with two bust band widths, a wider one without a closure and a narrow one with closure. The bra comes in UK sizes 6 to 24, which corresponds to an underbust of 66 to 114 centimetres, and a full bust of 78 to 126 centimetres. In inches, that is a range of about 26 to 44 inches and 30.5 to 49.5 inches respectively. The bra doesn't have cup sizes, but it is possible to deviate up to two sizes between your bust band and cup size to accommodate a range of four bust sizes. This pattern comes as a bra and undies set and costs £10 as a PDF or £14.50 in print. I would describe the pattern as suitable for an adventurous beginner with a couple of simple stretch fabric projects under their belt. And I reckon it's a good pattern for somebody who wants to dip their toe into bra sewing but is not ready to tackle an underwired bra yet or a bralette that involves a variety of different materials that seem a bit daunting. If you're concerned about new unfamiliar techniques, the instruction booklet includes a section on attaching elastic and there's also a series of video tutorials on the Made My Wardrobe website. With a couple of exceptions, the instructions are generally very thorough, and the addition of the videos definitely helped clarify the more puzzling steps. I made my first Josie bra toile out of cotton jersey with about 5% lycra or elastane. I initially cut the wider bra band, but ended up reducing it to something more akin to the narrow one, but without a back closure. For my second version of this bra, I used a layer of organic cotton with 8% lycra and a layer of stretch galloon lace. Looking at the layout pictures in the booklet, it was clear that some of the pattern pieces of jersey and lace were cut with a different direction of greatest stretch, in particular the lower back strap and the upper back strap, i.e. the pieces that effectively make up the bra straps. This inconsistency is a function of galloon lace being narrow, but when using lace and jersey in combination, it actually increases support. While each piece still has a good degree of stretch, the different direction of the stretch counters overstretching under pressure. 
I actually took this principle further and decided to turn my jersey underbust band by 90 degrees and cut it along the selvage. I'm glad I did this, as the 8% lycra meant the bust band was quite a lot looser than my 12 version at 5% lycra. Another difference with my first 12 was that I went up one cup size, as I wanted a bit more coverage as well as support around the bust. I'm not sure where my brain was that day because when I sized up the cut pieces I also sized up the lower back strap. I shouldn't have done this as there was some gaping at the back and I had to pull more of the lower back strap through the back ring to get it sufficiently taut. I suspect my reasoning was linked to the brass construction. The lower front cup and the lower back strap overlap at the underarm and you stitch the triangular shaped overlap together using a straight stitch or zigzag. This nifty design element seems to be more of an engineering than aesthetic feature because it creates a more rigid area to the side of the bust which enhances support more than you would think it would. I must have assumed therefore that the sizing of these pieces had to coincide but in hindsight I could have just kept the smaller lower back strap. I also deviated slightly from the instructions when sewing the front cups because I am quite fussy about finishing. I wanted all the seams to be enclosed, so I sandwiched the lower cup pieces between the upper cup pieces, which means that when you open them up, all the seams are enclosed. I then top stitched the seam to make sure the seam was crisp and everything lay flat neatly. I had seen this method demonstrated on other patterns in videos by the bra designers Madeline and Olulu, so I just really adopted it. What else is worth mentioning? In my first Josie bra I used a mix of pico edged bra elastic and plain plush elastic but for my second version I used some fold over elastic I had. A couple of episodes ago I had sworn off fold over elastic in knickers as the plastic smell triggered headaches. But as I said earlier, not all materials are made equal and thankfully the mocha coloured fold over elastic I happened to have was a joy to use on both the hands and the nose. The Josie bra can be sewn with pretty much any type of bra making elastic but I would add that the designer behind me made wardrobe for the purposes of her instructions and videos uses fold over elastic slightly differently than its intended purpose. She doesn't use it as a sort of elastic bias tape, but more akin to a plush bra making elastic. In most cases, she sews it to the right side of the fabric, zigzagging down the fold line, and then turns the elastic over and does another pass. This means the elastic retains its full width, with about a third peeping out as a colourful edging. I agree that this is arguably an easier way to use fold over elastic for beginners and produces a nice finish, but I would add from the perspective of a larger busted woman, I didn't find it particularly supportive for the underbust band. Despite its single layer of fabric, my Josie 12 was definitely more supportive, in part due to the lower lycra content, but mostly because I used lingerie elastic with more body. I therefore stitched another layer of plush elastic over the underbust fold-over elastic to give this second bra more support. Thanks to the lace, this extra zigzag stitching wasn't visible on the front, but obviously this is not a viable option if I were to make a jersey-only version. Next time, though, I will just use a more robust elastic for the two lengths of elastic on the underband. 
I definitely prefer the hook and eye closure to the circular bust band, but I did come a cropper when attaching the closure. The pattern recommends a 30mm or just over an inch closure. As these typically need to be ordered online, you're never quite sure what you'll get. My supposedly 30mm closure was actually nearer 35mm, which meant that the bust band edged with elastic wasn't quite wide enough. Fortunately, I found a 25mm one that came with a kit I had ordered before I knew better. My bust band was now a little too wide, though, but I remembered a tip I'd seen on one of Madeline's videos, which involved stitching a row of long tacking stitches at the edge of the bra band and then just ruching the edge in slightly to fit your actual closure. This approach worked perfectly and produced the desired effect. As it's generally easier to find a 32mm rather than a 30mm closure, in future I will just cut my band a smidge wider, about a centimetre or three-eighths of an inch, and use the ruching technique just to save unnecessary fretting. I've worn and washed this Josie bra several times now, and bar a few further tweaks, I'm generally very pleased with it. In fact, I've already cut number three. This bra offers me a comfortable degree of support, even for a non-wide bra, thanks to some of the design elements and the material and cutting choices I made. It's only fair to add that it did take me a while to get used to the shape of this bra, which differs somewhat from my shop-bought underwired bras. In particular, the plunge front, the straps sitting further in on my shoulders, and the additional fabric over the lower scapula due to the lower strap band. But getting used to these differences is much like getting used to the differences in feel and range of a sleeve on a woven top compared to one on a jersey t-shirt. I think it's worth mentioning that there is a distinction between different and uncomfortable, as this has been a recurring theme of much of my garment making in the past year, as well as many of my other types of making too. As I rethink how I meet practical needs that actually serve me rather than just defaulting to the norm, there is inevitably a transition phase during which things might feel odd. At times I just have to remind myself not to dismiss this oddity as wrong or inconvenient or uncomfortable and take the time to become accustomed to the difference. And from a wider perspective, I think being able to exist with and move through this distinction is something that will become increasingly important if we as societies are to accommodate the kind of structural changes that will be needed to our food systems, infrastructure, transport, etc. in light of the environmental pressures on our planet. I'd like to finish up with a new segment, which is actually an age-old activity and something that seems to be cropping up more regularly in my life these days. That is, a spot of tool making. As I'm flexing the range of clothes I'm sewing, from bras to a 12 for a winter coat, I've realised that a couple of tools have become more necessary and my makeshift solutions aren't quite cutting it. In particular, there is a growing need for a sturdy tailor's ham and sausage. Pressing makes such a difference to a finished garment, and that doesn't just mean having a bit of heft behind the iron. It also at times means a sturdy curved shape that offers good resistance to the iron. The answer is a tailor's ham for pressing darts, round curves and collars, and a tailor's sausage for pressing sleeves. These items are available commercially, but often only from specialist haberdasheries rather than the high street. 
And although they are not excessively expensive, there is something pleasing about being able to make your own simple tools, especially out of salvage materials, and save the pennies for the things we can't readily make ourselves. Also, for centuries, before an abundance of shops and mail order catalogues, let alone online shopping, making some of your own tools was the norm. And I really like that sense of connection with our forebears. So several weeks ago I set about making these two simple tailoring tools and they turned out to be particularly pleasing projects as they weren't just free but made almost entirely out of waste. I used a free pattern by Victory Patterns which I found on the Tilly and the Buttons blog and cut the fabric pieces from heavy calico I had recovered from an early coat twirl. The pieces needed aren't particularly big so it was easy to find enough fabric in oddly shaped pieces recovered from a previous interim make. Also, with something like a pressing pad, you don't have to be precious about the grain line, so you can stretch off cuts. Eight darts, two seams, and some clipping of curves later, and I had empty cushions to start filling. I have made a smaller hand before, which I stuffed with fabric scraps I'd cut up. This approach, however, gave me RSI in my wrist, and even with the generous stuffing, didn't produce a sufficiently rigid ham, so I decided to use a different filling this time. Traditionally, pressing hams and sausages are stuffed with sawdust to achieve smooth yet robust pads. Unfortunately, I don't have access to a workshop where I could source such a filling, so I thought laterally. Sawdust is a shredded wood cellulose. What other wood-derived cellulose did I have in abundance at home? I found the answer in the shredder. Like many people, Mr M has been working from home for months now. So if there's one thing we are not short of, it's shredded paper. Now paper shreds are obviously not as fine as sawdust, they do need to be stuffed down with purpose and force to get a smooth finish. Feeding them into the cushions through my jamming funnel and shoving them into every nook and cranny with the back of a wooden spoon turned out to be the most effective approach for me. And with generous stuffing, the paper shreds compact really well into a surprisingly firm stuffing. Apart from the satisfaction of making something useful out of next to nothing, I really enjoyed seeing the potential of an abundant, unassuming waste product that until then I'd only been using as a fibrous carbon layer in the compost bin. And needless to say, I've got a couple of ideas brewing for how I can eke more use out of this waste stream. Well, that's plenty for this episode. Please do let me know what you're up to with your making, and I would particularly like to hear about any bra or tool making exploits, or how you are extracting use from any domestic waste streams. So until next time, I hope you enjoy many pleasant hours of making, whatever form it is currently taking, and whatever your medium may be.